You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress. Um, my name is Tom. The bomb. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> but really, we don't have to use that as much. I mean, it's fun to right. use. But now that you're retired officially, this is show number two. Yes, it is. Number two. That you are now supposedly retired. Supposedly, yes. Yeah, right. You're just retired from wearing a badge and a gun. <laughs> right. And that stupid bulletproof vest every day. Yes. And riding your friend the motorcycle. Yes, my girlfriend, as my wife referred to it. Yeah. You still don't have one in your garage? No, it's empty, and it looks very bare right I, there. I, I, I think you've lost your manliness and your identity, too. <laughs> Do I have to turn in my man card now? Apparently. Uh, at least that's what I hear from some of the motor guys when you retire without your own motorcycle. Well, that person giving me a hard time is Susan Simmons, the founder of Under the Shield, uh, who quite frequently likes to give me a hard time. And that will never stop until the day I die. And even then, maybe some after that. Uh, it's all good. It's all in love. What can we say? That's right. That's good. Yeah. Well, I have a good guest for us today. Someone that I've known for uh, 20 plus years. And she uh, still speaks to you? Um, well, that's well, what she, that remains she did, to be seen. She did just a few minutes ago, so we'll see how okay. well that lasts throughout this podcast. And, and don't worry, audience, I've already asked for some really good stories on Tom the Bomb, so <laughs> hopefully she's going to give them to us. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, so our guest, she's a retired police officer from Tempe Police. Um, I'm... I'm going to read some of her experience because the list is extremely long. Um, she's a crew member, self-defense instructor with the Federal Air Marshal Service. Nice. She's an excited delirium and agitated chaotic events instructor with the Institute for the Prevention of In-Custody Deaths. All right, wait a minute. I have to ask a question of her already. Hold on. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Julie, in working that first one he said about working with the FAMs, did you also work with the federal flight deck officers, the pilots that are armed? So, no, I worked with the flight crew. Okay. For self-defense. Okay, because I, I worked with the prototype class of the FFDOs, and uh-huh. I thought maybe they would have brought you in since they're part of the, now I think, all part of the same system or something. Anyway, go ahead, Tom, back to you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Um, she's a certified de-escalation instructor for Force Science Institute, a crisis intervention team trained, a two-time member of the United States National Taekwondo team. So don't tick her off as it was the, the philosophy at Tempe. Uh, yeah. When, when I first knew that Julie was coming in <laughs> and they said, don't piss her off cause she's a badass. Yeah, there so, you go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, she's a police defensive tactics instructor, a police impact weapons instructor, confrontational simulations instructor, taser instructor. She can instruct. She's an overachiever. Is she is. 
She's a subject matter expert for the state of Arizona for physical fitness. She's also a police firearms instructor, a trained uh, hostage negotiator for the FBI, a pressure point control tactics instructor, again, a black belt in Taekwondo, and American karate. So just not one discipline. She has to have two. Is this why she's on Zoom and not in the office? Right, because if you piss her off, then she might reach out and (laughs) smack me or something. Um, She's a mixed martial arts uh, conditioning specialist for the National Academy of Sports Medicine, an adjunct faculty member for Real Salado College, a board member for National Emergency Responders Assistance Program, and she was the Police Defensive Tactics Instructor of the Year for the International Chiefs of Masters. She is also the founder of her own company called Artemis Self-Defense. And so our guest here is Julie Warniak. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you here. And there are so many questions I have just about everything he just read (laughs) off that list. But now I don't remember what they were. That's why I had to keep interrupting you. (laughs) But anyway, we're honored to have you on the show. So Tom's going to kind of run with this one since you guys know each other and he knows the ins and outs. But I'm sure I'll be sticking my two cents worth in every 30 seconds or so. You can count on that. (laughs) I don't know how to sit with my mouth shut. So, so I'm curious to uh, if you could enlighten us on um, your 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 company, Artemis Self Defense. What what do you do? What's all? What is it all about? So, in addition to doing corporate uh, safety courses and personal uh, self defense courses, the majority of what I do is uh, law enforcement training. So what I looked at is, as we know, de-escalation is the hot topic right now. Sure. Um, but we also know that de-escalation requires cooperation, as my friend Missy Olin says. Yeah. And uh, so I started looking at things that we can do ahead of time to prevent things from escalating in the first place. Because we know once they get to this point, it's kind of hard to sure. calm things down. And uh, so that's how the program started. It's... Um, you know, in place so that we can reach basically the most humane outcomes possible um, and also provide training, adequate training to our officers. Because a lot of these situations we're seeing in the media, I believe, are the result of a lack of or poor training. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're finding is in our pre-scenarios, um, a lot of officers are using excessive force or they don't know what to do. Um, but once they're provided the tools, um, and we build their confidence that they're faring much better in the post scenarios. And uh, team tactics is a very large component of that because we know that we could use less force um, when we have more people present. Not only that, but one of the things I'll do is I'll say, I'll take a big guy like Tom and pick one of the smaller statured officers at the beginning of training. And I'll say, um, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take him down and put him in handcuffs. <laughs> They kind of do one of those a step forward with a little <laughs> like, nervous smile, and then they back up, and then they do it again. And then I say, hold on a second. And I'm like, James, come here. You know, John, come here. Sally, come here. Now do it. And you just see the confidence sure. in them. You know, their demeanor changes. Because if I'm only responsible for, for this and not, you know, like one arm or, or exactly. one leg or the head instead of the whole body, it makes it a lot easier. Sure. Wow. How receptive are departments? Because again, 
I've been doing this 30 years, and the biggest problem I've had is when you try to bring something new to a culture whose favorite saying is, why do y'all do this? Because this is the way we've always done it, (laughs) (laughs) whether it works or not. Exactly. I think given the current climate in this country, that agencies are open um, right now to change and positive change and good training. So my business is all word of mouth. And typically once an agency sees the program, I don't say typically, I have it yet to be any other way is that once an agency sees a program, they want it for their, their department. So and their officers. Is it kind of seen like PPCT was when it first came out? Because I know, or actually, well, I guess PPCT was too, but the um, verbal judo, you know, that was kind of a new concept when it first came out and it was like everybody in the country then wanted it. Are you kind of getting that same reception? So you broke up, Susan, but I think you asked me about verbal judo being well-received. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say it's similar. And I think that there are so many great um, aspects of verbal judo that still are beneficial for officers. And it's something that I think pretty much every training program still incorporates sure. um, the good elements of it. So, Yeah, we just don't hear a lot about verbal judo anymore. So no. I didn't really know if it was even something still being taught or if yours yeah, would I- kind of replace it. Yeah, no, I think that um, strategic communication is a term that we use. Um, but, you know, the concepts are still either the same in, in some regard or very similar. Interesting. Hmm. See, if we had video, we'd have her demonstrate it on you. <laughs> <laughs> that could have been fun. Well, yeah, if she was here. Um... If I was using Tom, I I'm sorry, you're breaking up. I couldn't understand that. Yeah, we're definitely having trouble yeah. with Zoom. Have, have, having some problems with the internet connection here. Can you hear us? Yeah. Can you hear us all right? Oh, I can. Okay. All right, <laughs> so good. if you were using Tom, what would you do? I said if I was using Tom, I would want to demonstrate the hands-on portion of the training. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would have cameras running from every angle, I assure you. <laughs> that would definitely have to be one that was live with with video recording that yeah. we could put it on Facebook later. Well, okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd be willing. I'd be a guinea pig for that. I don't know. Maybe we maybe we need to volunteer Tracy to come go through the training and then practice on me. Absolutely. Okay, that would work too. <laughs> well, Julie, something else that I wanted to talk to you about is back on March third of two thousand fifteen, I believe was the date. Uh, you experienced a traumatic event at work, and I would like to see if you could um, kind of tell your story about what what you went through that day and how it transpired and what all happened to you. The only difference was I'll tell you, I was putting on my uniform and every day I spoke some version of the same mantra. Um, and Tom, you'll probably remember this from Sergeant staff. I expect and accept that I'll be involved in a lethal encounter today and I will do everything I can to ensure my survival. Yes. And as I was getting ready, I had this distant and eerie feeling 
that something terrible was going to happen. This is something that never occurred in, you know, my, at that point, 19 year career. Um, so I actually altered some of the things that I did, one of which was that I pinned my hair back because I hadn't been pinning my hair back for work. Um, so I got to work in, um, as you know, Tom, my wife, Karen, uh, was worked for the department as well. At that point, she was our audit and compliance sergeant. Um, our paths rarely uh, crossed that work, but they did that morning. And it was funny because when I was leaving her office, um, she called me back and she said, just be careful, okay? And then she told me she loved me. And I would later learn that she also had a bad feeling um, wow. that something was gonna happen. Wow. <laughs> um, so the second call, Second call of the day, I was dispatched with uh, my friend Latasha Hampton to a tech welfare uh, call. And the long story short is the victim in this case uh, reached out to her sister. She tried to call her and tried to text her asking for help and telling her to come get her. Well, the sister was at work, so she didn't retrieve the message for several hours. Um, the sister sends her boyfriend to the victim's house he hears talking and when he knocks he hears what he believes is a scream and then he doesn't get a response so he contacted us uh, I was the first on scene contacted him asked him about a history of family violence he said there wasn't one that actually the suspect in this case was a really nice guy um, as I spoke with him and gathered intel uh, Latasha arrived on scene and she leaned into me while I was talking with them and said, I'm going to start running my recorder because I have a really bad feeling about this. <laughs> and it, you know, um, check welfare calls are calls we handle every day. Right. And Sometimes so, very routine. Right. Absolutely. So because Latasha had on her recorder, we know that we knocked and announced over 17 times. We spoke with neighbors um, who advised they hadn't seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. Um, so Latasha went to the back of the complex, um, which happens to be in the flight path of the airport. Yeah, so um, she called me to the back. Um, she said that she heard reggae music turning on and off. And as we stood there, she said, wait, did you hear that? And I said, no, what? And she said, I hear I'm unraveling duct tape. So not only did she hear this through the soundproof glass, but she was able to identify what the sound was. Um, at that point, I started making my way back toward the front of the complex, and uh, I was intercepted by um, a gentleman who was holding a cell phone. He was very frantic, and he was saying, officer, officer, I received a message from my daughter. All it says is, I love you. And not that that's not great to hear, but I'm concerned. And I told him we were concerned um, as well, and that we would do everything we could to make sure she was okay. It turns out, obviously, that's um, the victim's father. So I make my way to the front door. I uh, request additional units. So now we know we have at least four units coming. And uh, I don't recall if I asked him or if he just provided it, but somehow or another, dad gives me a tire iron because there's a steel security gate that's protecting the inside wooden door of this, this apartment. And so I'm making my way to the door and I hear something behind me and dad's hot on my heels. And I said, hey, I need you to step back. And he said, um, well, I just want to help. And I said, I understand, but I need you to go stand around the corner in case this goes south on us. And he did. And I started working on the steel security gate with a tire um, as I did. So I got, <laughs> wow. Yeah, with the tire. Wow. And so um, I couldn't get very good leverage because the tire. <laughs> 
gave me was like about six inches long. So I asked the um, caller um, if he had a tire and he did. Turns out the, the thing's the same length. So I wedge one in, I start working on the door and I become acutely aware of the fact that my heart rate's elevating, starting to breathe harder and um, I'm starting to sweat profusely. So I start um, cognizantly working on my tactical breathing, you know, in for four, hold it for four, out for four, hold it out for four and slow everything down and uh, have some mental clarity. So as I'm working on the door, I hear Latasha say from the back, um, she's screaming for help. And right at that point, I hear noise to my right and I look and thankfully it's the Calvary and they have the shield, the battering ram and a Halligan tool. Um, so Sergeant Thorn steps up right away. He pounds on the door, announces, and then just breaks open that steel security gate. Um, now, say it opened like a knife through butter and no doubt because I had done all the hard work. Sure. <laughs> That's it. With a tire iron. <laughs> you stick to that story, girl. I'll, I'll back you up so, every step uh, of the way. <laughs> there, uh, so um, at that point, the fair pop sets up with battering ram. He starts hitting the door. Um, the door won't open, but it's just shattering the bottom panels to pieces. They're just blistering. And uh, after he hit it, I'd say seven or eight times, he stepped back to discard it. Um, now we've created a hole in the bottom of the door, just the bottom panels, and I'm the first through the door. Uh, so as, I, as I'm coming through the door, I notice that he has all the lights shut off and all the window shades down. So I'm going from complete um, dark, uh, sunlight to almost total darkness. And uh, across from me, on the other side of the apartment, I can see the sliding glass door and I can, through the um, shades, I can see the shadows of um, Officer Hampton and Officer Salme kicking that door, trying to get in. And in front of the sliding glass door, I see the silhouette of the back of the suspect standing over the victim. Um, he reaches high overhead and, and drops his weight, swinging his arm twice. Could you um, see the victim yeah. at that point? Yeah, he was standing over her, so she was laying on the ground. And um, it kind of subconsciously registered with me that I, I didn't hear any contact because I thought he was hitting her. And then he quickly um, looked in my direction and ran out of sight. And I said, I'm waiting for the guys to get in the hole in the door. And I say, he's running. And he went to the right. And for some reason, I, I picked up my left hand and I pointed and uh, so Rich came in, button hooked into a bathroom on the right. As Doran's coming through the door, I'm holding on the far corner because if if you think about this, I'm in a small entryway. If I advance forward, there's a kitchen, well, kind of behind me, uh, just a little bit is a bathroom. But if I advance forward, there's a kitchen to the right. And then a little bit further opens to the family room, which is where I saw him, which is where I saw him run out of sight. So I'm holding on that corner to the family room, expecting a long threat, also thinking, how are we going to get to her? And uh, so I said, he's running and he went to the right. And then Sergeant Doran said, well, where is he now? And I said, I think he went to a back room because I thought he went to either escape or barricade sure. himself. Turns out there was a bypass from the family room into the kitchen. Unbeknownst to us, he had jumped that bypass and now he is standing on the corner of the kitchen 
waiting with a large hunting knife. So as I take my next step forward, uh, he leaps out of the kitchen with the hunting knife overhead. And of course, my immediate thought was, I know you haven't heard this before from me, Tom, but oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you she could cuss. I knew it was coming. <laughs> Here, let me clap for that one. <laughs> She's always so sweet when she was at work. That's why I never heard her say anything bad. Because <laughs> you hadn't seen her in this kind of situation. <laughs> You know, not so much because I was scared, but because I knew I couldn't get out of the way and I was about to be sure. stabbed. And uh, it's funny how quickly our brains think, because I thought, he killed her, he's trying to kill me, and that's a really odd angle the knife's coming at. So thankfully, my hand was up from pointing, and so I'm starting to step to my right and camp my body, I'm extending my arm, and... Uh, so his arm, as it comes, um, and his, he leaps out of the kitchen, the muzzle of my, uh, my gun touches his body. And when I pull the trigger the first time, the knife penetrates my neck just above my left clavicle. Uh, before my, or between my first and second round, it was like I sensed this invisible wave of energy that literally picked me up and launched me backwards. So as I'm going through the air, I, I cap off another round and then I crash to the floor, um, apparently hitting my head on the tile and somehow unbeknownst me injuring my shoulder as it turns out. Thankful stand up um, because there's no doubt in the close quarters we were that I probably could have been shot by um, Sergeant Dorn or Rich Faircloth. Um, but instead I sprung to my hands and feet and uh, I scurried out that hole in the door and then I cut left and ran to the cover that I had already identified in the event things went south on us. Um, when I turned around, thankfully, um, Ryan Garnett hadn't reached the door with us, so he never came through because as soon as Doran came in, um, what happened is um, Rich sees him leap out of the kitchen. He sees the knife. He starts shooting to neutralize the threat. Doran sees him leap out. He sees the arm extending, but because his eyes haven't adjusted the dark, and I think because I started shooting so quickly, he heard the gunfire. He actually thought that the suspect shot me and did not um, that he had stabbed me. Um, so, and Garnett came. He stayed with me. I put out a call for um, an ambulance and advised I had been stabbed, and then asked Ryan a couple extra times because they thought I was hitting the carotid to you know, ask for fire to step it up. And we went out to an intersection where we knew fire would come in and waited for them there. Um, there was a miscommunication between central dispatch for fire and our um, guys. So whereas it probably would have taken them a minute to get to us because they were one block directly south, it, it took approximately 10 minutes oh, to get there. Um, so in that time as we, I sat on the sidewalk, you know. Um, I was bleeding profusely by the time I got there. The blood was running uh, down my body. It had soaked my uh, shirt, my inside shirt, and it was now running into my boots and my socks. Um, so I sat down and started working on my tactical breathing. Um, I put a rubber glove on and I, I was covering the wound and Garnett promptly stood in front of me and said, Julie, what do you want me to do? I said, Garnett, I want you to stop the breathing. <laughs> and uh, so he and then it was really awesome because at one point during that transition and he actually went behind me, I was sitting down, I had taken my vest off 
And uh, he kind of just hugged me from behind and put pressure on the wound, um, which was quite comforting. Um, also, Ryan called Karen. Um, and uh, when she answered, I said, hey, she was on speakerphone. I want you to know I've been stabbed. And she said, I know. Turns out she heard it over the radio. And she asked me if I was okay. I gave her the second worst answer, I guess. I told her I didn't know because I didn't. <laughs> anyway. I'm sure uh, she appreciated then, that. <laughs> no added stress there. Uh, and then at that point, um, Latasha, well, Rich called for them to, you know, bust through the backslide, the sliding door, uh, but they couldn't get through that security glass. So Latasha asked for the battering ram. So Rich was running it around. Ryan called to him and said that I had been stabbed. And Rich actually forgot that I was even there. So he never saw me get stabbed. And uh, so after, um, you know, breaking open the back door, he came and helped to uh, render aid. Um, obviously, I'm so thankful for uh, Sergeant Doran and Rich for helping to neutralize the threat and, you know, keeping... Uh, hold of the, the uh, scene, and then Ryan staying with sure. me. And then also <laughs> the hospital and the, the EMT staff, the firefighters. I mean, this was definitely a team effort. And thankfully, it missed my carotid by less than an inch. Wow. So uh, I survived it, obviously. Obviously, yeah, but that's great. Um, did you ever figure out what Latasha was when she was screaming for help? Did you ever figure out, could she see the guy, the suspect's, stabbing the victim or it was actually Latasha saying that she heard the victim screaming for oh, help. Okay. That's what she had communicated over the air. And, uh, turns out that he had, he had duct tape her and, um, he, he had been holding her against her will for four days and torturing her. He was cutting her with a machete okay. and uh, beating her. And he told her multiple times, you know, you're not Brittany and I'm not Matthew. I'm here to slay demons and I'm going to kill you. Um, so she later would tell us that she believed she was going to die. And the other really cool thing that came of it was that um, while I was trying to get in that steel security gate, Latasha asked for her name, the victim's name. And I told her it was Brittany and she started yelling into her, telling her to hang on and that we were going to save her. And that Brittany later told us they were Latasha's words that kept her hanging wow. on. Wow. Well, and what was the relationship between the two? So a boyfriend-girlfriend okay. relationship. And they had been living together, I assume? Correct. Wow. Um, did it ever come out of what, was there like some type of an event or did they have an argument that kind of made this guy kind of lose control mentally? So there were a number of things. Um, one thing is that I understand a family member believed that he may have had um, significant mental health issues that he was never treated or diagnosed for. Um, we also know that he had drugs on board um, from a letter, uh, part of which I'll share with you, uh, from a cousin. Um, I understand he had a newfound obsession with the occult. Mm. Um, so I, I think that that all probably factored into this uh, four-day episode. Right. Yeah, drugs, cult, <laughs> and um, mental, mental health issues yeah. <laughs> is probably not a good combination of things. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Any one of those on their own is bad enough. But but I have to yeah. know, did he live? He did not survive. Okay. Um, 
victim was stabbed 11 times, uh, one of which was a through and through. It had gone entirely through her body. It gives you an idea of how big hunting knife was. That he stabbed me with the same knife, so I had additional health concerns, obviously, right. uh, with that. But uh, she did survive, and I can tell you that the trauma doctor, who's just phenomenal, um, attributed our survival, not only uh, hers, but mine, to our physical conditioning. I have to ask, because one of the big things that we do at Under the Shield is we we know there's lots of stories out there that officers give about critical incidents and the things they're involved in. But rarely do people really talk about the aftermath of these events. I have a Phoenix officer, Mark Valenzuela, who's retired from Phoenix now, that was combat Marine and, and a pretty major event. We hope to have him on the show sometime in the next few weeks. But he's traveled around the country and talked with me. And I, I think the greatest impact Mark has had on his own community of law enforcement all over the country is in telling his story of being broken afterwards. And all the things that the department tried and failed and all of those things. Do you tell that story very often about the aftermath of this and what all went on and, and what the department did right and wrong? I do. And, and that's actually, Susan, one of the most important things I think we can do. I agree. To prepare our people in the event that they should find themselves in this type of uh, situation. Well, um, because otherwise, everybody, what we find is when Mark tells his story is people come up afterwards or text us and say, thank you, because I was just in an event and I thought everything I was feeling and thinking was weakness or irrational or whatever. And now I'm finding out it's pretty much normal. Right, exactly. And, and I'll tell you, Susan, I, I think that I was as prepared physically and tactically for the situation itself. Mm -hmm. I wasn't prepared for was the aftermath. Um, and, you know, so um, my experience in sharing the story and, and sharing, um, you know, what the aftermath looked like for me, um, I, the feedback's the same as, as your friend that you're talking about. You know, uh, people can identify with you if they've been there. And then they talk about how, if they haven't been there, that they're going to prepare an event that it does happen to them which is really good. I have to ask you too, because what we have also found in the mental wellness side of all of this is it isn't the act of shooting and killing somebody that is the issue, but that's what so many on the licensed side, because again, that's kind of the, it looks like the common sense factor when you don't really understand the industry, but it's more of the guilt or feeling responsible for the innocent people that get injured in situations and stuff, do you find that as part of your story? Really, you don't really feel bad about shooting this guy that stabbed you first. I mean, it's only fair. Um, but the the I guess the frustration of not being able to get in there fast enough to help this woman, although it sounds like she lived, and I assume is doing well today as well as anybody could be given those circumstances. But do you think if she had died, this would have made the impact of it even more difficult for you? You know, that's really hard to say, Susan. I, I think that um, my mindset on this is, is to look at the positives Good. and to be grateful that things worked out the way that they did. And while um, I don't feel guilty, 
about you know the fact that we had to neutralize the threat um, my, my take on that is that it's very unfortunate you know it's a 26 year old male with his whole life ahead of him um, that had some significant issues but he made some decisions that day that cost him his yes. life um, but you know a lot of and i know you both understand this a lot of what you contend with in the aftermath is almost inexplicable sometimes um one thing that did happen that was really uh, difficult for me was that uh, when i was at home recovering i was at home for three weeks recovering physically i had suffered a concussion um, i had the stab wound and then i had a shoulder injury that which would require a, a surgery uh, but while I was at home recovering, the detective called me and said that the family of the suspect had sent a card for me to the department. And he asked me what I wanted him to do with it. And, you know, I said, well, the first thing I want you to do is open it up and make sure there's no anthrax in there. <laughs> Spoken like a real cop. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> a little cynicism there, but okay. <laughs> you know, because I think it's so alarming to think that the, the suspect's family would send sure. a card, right. you know. So I said, and then I want you to read it. And I think if you think that um, it would be disruptive to my healing, then I don't want it. And he opened it and he read it and he said, I think it's good. I'm going to send it over. So, you know, they said that, you know, they hope that we're recovering, their hearts go out to all of us involved, so on and so forth. But the last part of the uh, card said, Thank you for saving Brittany's life and giving us a reason to live. Wow. And, you know, that that's the suspect's family. So, um, wow. you know, that was that was difficult for me. Um, you know, so there are these funny things that it's not funny, haha, but um, things that happen, you know, um, the way that people respond to you, the things that people say. Um, initially it's so overwhelming because there are so many people, you know, you're receiving hundreds and hundreds of cards and emails and letters and visitors and phone calls. Um, while it's really great, it, it's quite overwhelming. And then people don't know what to say or do. I can remember, uh, we decided we were going to have one get together at our house so that everyone can come see me and see that I'm okay. And then we could be done with it. You know, we just go for a few hours. And I have friends coming in with bottles of wine and beer and stuff. <laughs> and, and, friends and, and I don't drink at all. And I, and I, I look at them and I say, well, you know, I don't drink. And they're like, well, maybe you should start. <laughs> that would have been the and time I, if anybody was. That this would not be the time to start. And I would uh, later learn that any kind of uh, drugs, even if it's tobacco, you know, can really prolong, you know, uh, yes. Susan. Uh, traumatic yes. stress so um but you know people don't know what to say but then there are people who you know just always seem to say the right thing i, I can remember and you can appreciate this tom uh tony miller was overseeing the uh, bike team and he called me up and he said julie he said uh we're gonna come over and mow your grass <laughs> <laughs> well tony we don't have any grass but I <laughs> It's just somebody thinking, you know, what would be helpful right, right now? Sure. And I think that that's so important. And, um, you know, then some painful and difficult things uh, get said. Um, 
you know, <laughs> one thing, and this is kind of comical on one hand, but when I was in the hospital, there, apparently there was some kind of big higher up meeting close by with multiple agencies. So our command staff were some of the first folks in the trauma room. And uh, without saying the people who said it, um, a couple of them came in and the first words out of their mouth were, oh my God, Julie, I'm so glad it was you. Because if it was one of our other officers, they may not have survived. <laughs> they're like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, wow. Maybe say we're lucky it was easy or something like that, you know? But, you know, people say things and they don't know. And, and while I talk about this, I, I, I've caught myself, you know, I have a friend whose um, stepson died. And when I saw her husband, I say, you know, don't ask people how they're doing. Sure. You know, right. they're doing well. You know, ask, you know, maybe how they're holding up or ask, like, is there something that I could do that would help right now? But don't ask how they're doing. So what are the first words out of my <laughs> mouth when it's how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to ask how he's doing. And, of course, he started crying. And, um, you know, uh, that's how. So we have to be careful about what we say. Um for Especially sure. right yeah. after an event like that, because you're reliving things and questioning things and trying to figure, why am I feeling this way? And then yeah. someone's going to question you on how you feel. Yeah, it's- well, it's funny. There's a, a She's retired now, but it was an FBI agent over in San Diego that did a kind of a documentary on this. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was called Don't Call Me Killer. Oh, no, but I've heard that. Yeah. And that was the first thing that was said to Mark when he walked back into his precinct was somebody walked up and said, how you doing killer? So I said, all of that was wrong. Not, you know, not just the, yeah. how you doing. And then you tack killer onto the end of it. And, um, but you should watch the documentary. It is something that, uh, it's out there on the internet. You're supposed to verify your law enforcement. I'm sure being retired, there wouldn't be an issue. I have a copy of it somewhere. The problem is, is none of us have any kind of a, CD or DVD player or anything to play these things on anymore, but um, I'll see if I can come up with it. Cause I think you'd be interested to hear. They talk to dispatch. They talk to officers. They talk to family members that have been in fatal shootings. And it's a real interesting kind of perspective from all the different places that I think um, you might be interested in hearing. I'll see if I can come up with it and uh, yeah. get it to you through Tom. So Julie, yeah. what did, what, I think, you know, one thing you mentioned there, Susan, is... Go ahead, Julie, finish your thought. Um, having, you know, everybody involved, the dispatchers and the family and taking care of everybody. Um, am I frozen again? No, you're coming through all right. I don't know what that noise was. Can you yeah. hear yes. me? Oh, okay. Um, you know, it's that connection... Um, with the family initially, because we know when an officer is struggling, they're going to be the first ones to see the red flags. Right. And if they have a connection to the agency, they, feel comfortable, they can alert the agency. Yes. Plus it helps them to survive the aftermath because, you know, they've been thrust into a situation that they've never faced before sure. either. Yeah. We do a training. Uh, Tom got to sit in on for the first time down in Yuma with border patrol a few weeks ago. And, it's an eight-hour class called Law Enforcement Survival at Home and on the Streets, and they bring their spouse or significant other. It's sad when I advertise this, I have to tell them, don't bring both, 
because I've actually had somebody make a mistake and show up with the wife and the girlfriend. (laughs) It didn't go real well for him, especially. Um, But we've always said that the first line of defense is the family, and we don't do any training there to tell them what to look for and then who they can contact, because typically the first contact is going to be the the law enforcement spouse's supervisor, which might not necessarily be the best first contact. Right, exactly. And they think, you know, having a liaison um, between the department and the officer is a really great idea. Um, I can tell you, um, you know, higher ups tend to think that they should be the ones and they're not always the right fit because sometimes they don't have that connection uh, to the officer. So that, that's one thing, you know, with Karen being a supervisor, uh, both Karen and, and my good friend Lisa Ball um, were kind of that uh, connection for me to the department. Um, the other thing, one thing that Tempe does extraordinarily, well, I don't know if this is uh, by design or not. Um, I know because I was physically injured, it makes a difference. Um, but I had a nurse liaison and I can, I cannot tell you how helpful that was. At first, you know, I was apprehensive because we didn't know, you know, if, if there were some concerns about trust or not, uh, but there wasn't. And um, she was incredibly helpful in setting up appointments and making sure everything got done. Um, and then, like I said, having that connection to and communication through Kieran and Lisa to the department. And although um, I think every agency can usually improve sure. on the communication aspect of things, um, you know, I was sitting home for three weeks and not being contacted with expectations or anything like that. So I was really anxious thinking, oh, God, are they going to call me and want me back tomorrow? And, um, you know, on the flip side of that, whereas we talk a lot about organizational betrayal, you know, I'm sure you've heard uh, people use that term before. A lot of times I think it's us. Um, partly on us with communication. Cause I know if I had reached out to my commander and said, Hey, when do you want me back? There's no doubt in my mind. He would have said, you know, Julie, you stay home as long as you need to. And when you feel you're ready, that's when you come back. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, so I, I usually will say it's uh, a perceived betrayal trauma a lot of times. And sometimes it is, you know, um, if command staff tells you, and this is something that happened with me of, Anything you want or need, let us know. And then the one thing that I did end up asking for was the academy had made a request that I be assigned down there teaching defensive tactics or helping out. And they sent this beautiful letter about how they thought it would be a good positive environment conducive to my healing um, while I was on light duty. And that request got denied. And I, that was the one thing I had asked for um, because I thought that was the best place for me. Um, and instead, um, I was placed on light duty uh, in crime prevention doing absolutely nothing. Wow. And as you both know, probably after our trauma, we can't be learning something completely new we can't be sitting doing absolutely nothing either. Um, I think that that really harmful. Yeah, there's some common sense that is. So I sat there for three weeks. Wow. That Yeah, there's some common sense that has kind of left <laughs> yeah. the building on these things. Yeah. Mark was stuck in um, homicide. 
is where they put him after his shooting. And we're all kind of like, yeah, that probably wasn't a good plan. <laughs> he didn't need to be sitting in there looking at murder files and cases and, and things like that. But did you ever find out why it was denied for you to go to the academy? Because that just makes so much sense to me. Right. I, I don't know, Susan, emphatically. I heard it was something political between the department and something that may have been going on at the academy at that time. <laughs> that never happened. Um, <laughs> the, reason, the reason's not real important, but I think what is important is to understand that there is no one-size-fits-all. And if we accommodate an officer um, to expedite their healing process, I do think that that obviously can benefit everybody in the right. long run. And so what happened is I sat on light duty for doing nothing for uh, three weeks. And then I just requested that my doctor release me so I could go back to patrol. I was actually feeling really good. And, you know, now um, I felt like I was giving back to the community. I was feeling good. You know, I, I kind of had um, a mission, if you will. I knew I had about a year before I would retire. So I'm back in patrol riding for a couple months, maybe two, three months. And one day just hit the wall. Um, now I'll tell you, the department had sent me um, to speak with a counselor, um, which was a horrible, horrible experience um, with that particular counselor. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that was right for me. Um, so two or three months into it, when I hit the wall, um, I ended up getting the help that I needed. And uh, and you know, we think about kind of taking away the stigma. And we know we can do that. The International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, suggests, you know what, get your officer help as soon after as possible. And then at minimum, have them see a counselor again at one month, three months, six months, and year. So you have your officer seeing a counselor at least five times. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's no stigma attached to that because it's not optional right. for the officer. you know. And uh, so I like that approach. And I also um, had never been to a therapist before, but what I did find was that I would open up and, and divulge information to her that I wouldn't and didn't feel comfortable sharing with anybody else. Uh, so it, it's an amazing environment. That's what counselors are there for. They're the experts in that area. Um, I would obviously suggest a counselor that is... Uh, you know, has worked with law enforcement. That's what I was going to ask you real quick. That first counselor, um, what was it that you you didn't feel comfortable with? Did they have any experience working with law enforcement or was it that they just didn't understand what you were going through because of your event? Um, so there are a number of things. <laughs> but to put it in a nutshell, um, it was you walk into the office, you're sitting in an open waiting sure. room. And, um, then I went in and um, I went to sit down and the counselor said, don't, don't sit there, sit over here on this slouchy couch. Well, I had a concussion and I had a hematoma from where I was stabbed and it was hard for me under those conditions on a slouchy couch. And um, so I said, okay. So I sat there while she proceeded to type like she was turned so, and she proceeded to type the entire time she talked to me barely looked at me I didn't really 
feel like she was 100% present or hearing what I was saying. Um, and I think I went there twice. And uh, it was funny because Karen had said she had concerns about being in a open waiting room. And I'm like, oh, I don't see what the issue is. Why? The second time I went, a group of officers walked in and one of the officers like saw me and said, oh, my God, from another. And then she's like, oh, never mind. Oh, you're breaking up again. So, <laughs> so I said, well, I was involved in, you know, creative. Oh, okay. So I, I heard that another officer or a group of officers came now? in the room and said something to you, but then we kind of were broken up there. Yeah, so she said, oh, my God, Julie, what are you doing here? And uh, like I said, she probably, um, then she said, never mind, because I think she's like, oh, you're at a psychologist's <laughs> office. God only knows what's going on. But um, I explained that I was involved in a critical. That's why I was there. Uh, but, yeah, it, it just wasn't the right fit for yeah. me. Um, and, you know, thankfully, I, I found the help. Yeah, one of the things we've been pushing it under the shield is – and I was just up in Colorado this week with a, a a group, the Rocky Mountain Law Enforcement Accreditation Committee, I guess that's what they're called. But anyway, it's six states that get together and it's part of the CALEA uh, National Accreditation. And one of the things I was talking to them about was the importance of vetting licensed mental health to make sure that they truly do understand this industry. And we've always recommended, because when I started under the shield in my much younger days, 30 years ago, I did a full SWAT school. I did a full hostage negotiation training. I did narcotics training. I was married to a federal agent in drug enforcement, but I wanted to, to really understand what the job was about. So I put myself in those positions. And I said, I have probably done more ride-alongs in this country in 30 years than some officers have done in a career. <laughs> And because just being in a car with them, especially at night, you can learn a lot about the personalities and they can learn about you. And I was telling them, I said, it's really important that there be someone in between peer support and the license world that can vet these resources and then try to either do some training or set standards or things that they should do. Because I had one person in here, it was a young officer from a large department here in the Valley who um, had early on in her career had a child run over twice by a truck. And when she went to counseling, the counselor looked at her and said, um, you have too much trauma for me. And I'm thinking, if you can't hear about one child mm -hmm. run over, yeah. how in the world do you deal with a veteran officer of 10, 15, 20 years and all the things they've had? Why are you even on a list a police department would have for a counselor. And that discourages right. people. It doesn't take too many officers going. And, and I'm, I already know exactly who that counselor was you're talking about, because we've heard the same stories over and over and over again. And it, right. it, it just has to be entirely different. And that's um, something that we're trying to get the point across around the country. That's why we call ourselves stress coaches as non-mandated reporters. I've got a master's in counseling but I'm board certified as an expert in traumatic stress. 
And so as a non-mandated reporter, it's safe. And then we can get officers where they need to go, whether it's licensed for FMLA or whatever, or peer support can handle it. But it gives another component that's a safe component, because we never keep notes and records, that can then open other doors if we need to. So, yeah. So, well, you know, um, it's it's interesting. One of the things that, that happened as well is, uh, you know, when I saw this particular counselor, I was doing well, and and she asked why I thought I was doing so well, and I said, you know, well, I'm exercising, um, my nutrition is on track, I have a good support system, and so on and so forth. And she said, well, what are you going to do to make sure you uh, continue doing well? And I said, well, I'm going to continue doing those things. But also a friend had uh, suggested a trauma retreat, you know, just so that I had that support and stuff. And she looked at me and said, I would not support that. You're fine. And I won't support that. And so I didn't go, you know, I, I didn't realize at that point that being in a supportive environment with peers that had experienced trauma, that it would be conducive to my healing and and so I didn't go at that point. I did go later, um, which was helpful. Yeah, well, there was a psychologist here that will tell some of the officers, again, at another large department here, that don't go to Susan Simmons because she won't help you. And when you figure that out, come back to me, and I'll give you the name of some real counselors who work with real law enforcement. And I laugh and think, I guess all these yeah. cops I've been working with are stayed at a Holiday Inn Express or something, whatever. Right. But, you know, my attitude is if somebody walks into my office and says, hey, I heard standing on my head for 30 minutes will help me with my trauma, I'm going to put the timer on and give them a wall and tell them to kick their feet up. You don't tell people not to try things unless, I mean, obviously, if it's something completely crazy and bizarre. Right. Detrimental to yes, them. That, that, but a trauma retreat, to me, that's huge. And I'm glad you did finally go. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. And, and, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, Susan. It's not a one size fits all. What works for me may not work for the next officer. And we froze up again. Said, you know, oh, can you hear yeah. me now? Now again, we're picking you up. <laughs> nope, locked up again. Did we lose you completely? Oh. <laughs> okay, now it looks like we're back. Uh, can you hear yeah, me now? We can hear yep. you. Okay. <laughs> so my friend of 40 years, uh, who's a psychologist, said two things that I think were really profound. One is you need to find, you know, talk with people who are not only willing, but are capable of hearing what you're going to say to them. And I found that with my mom because my mom was a nurse for 40 years. Both of my uncles were cops. My brother-in-law's cop. Um, I'm a cop. And my mom asked me, she came from Ohio to visit and she asked me to tell her what happened. And I got halfway through the story. We got interrupted and she never asked me to finish. Wow. And he helped me to understand that she wasn't right. right. You know? And so I when they talked with people who were ready to hear it. And the other thing he said was just what you're saying, Susan. It doesn't sound profound at first, but you have to find what works for you and you have to do it. And it's 
going to be trial and error and it's, it's going to be hard work, you know, and that's what I found. And then I found what worked for me eventually, you know, and, and what keeps me going. The other thing is that I agree with you on Susan is who knows who it's going to be that you talk with that has the capacity to hear what you're saying, because really um, we need somebody who's going to be a hundred percent present, who's going to listen without judgment and who's going to keep confidence. And ironically for me, there, um, when I was in the hospital, um, Chief Debbie Black was working in uh, Glendale. And we're frozen again. Last, last we heard was Chief Debbie Black was working in Glendale. Yeah, and for some reason she came to see me in the hospital. Um, You know, we weren't friends. We just knew each other from training and stuff. And she said, you know, we'll go to lunch when you get out. And um, Almost through it. Almost through, yeah. (laughs) We're frozen again, if you can hear us, Julie. Uh, Last we heard was that you were going to go to lunch. Okay. Can you yeah, hear me I now? Can, hear you now. can you hear yep. me now? Okay. So, you know, we went to lunch and she asked me if I mind if she asked what Tempe did well and what I thought they could do better. And so I had that conversation with her and uh, she sent me a text afterward and she said, you know, I promise to keep your confidence. Uh, we're frozen again, Julie. Um, we heard you say that you got a text that she said that she would keep your confidence. And now it looks like we're back on. Yeah. So she promised to keep my confidence. First of all. <laughs> Zoom's great till it doesn't work. Oh, I know. Yeah, we're. Oh, start again with her we need to do this <laughs> start again with the the text that she'd keep your confidence yeah well i'll say first of all while we were there you know she was 100 percent present um she listened without judgment but she sent me a text that said you know she promised to keep my confidence and that she was going to go back and make glendale better for their that's people. great so what what she effectively did was brought value to the trauma that we had been right. through because to this day, and I'm not, I'm not slighting Tempe. Well, I am in a way because if something like this happens and you don't learn yes. from it, that's a yes. problem. But to this day, Tempe has not debriefed this incident with the department. And there are so many lessons to learn from it. And that's one thing that I wish they would do and not just our incident, but a number of incidents, because it was like you said earlier, Susan, about your friend who shared what he went through and in, in the challenges that he faced. It benefits everybody. Yes. Yeah. Do you mean debrief from a tactical standpoint or from a critical incident peer support standpoint? Oh, I use the word debrief. Um, I, I could call it an incident summary, you know, just to lessons yes. learned. Okay. Um, critical yes. I, I didn't know that they never yeah. did that. 
No, they did a debrief um, for the folks that were right. there, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about a summary for the agency so that everybody in the department learns from the incident. Sure. I have a friend who um, is a and uh, asked how I was doing, and the officers said, we don't even know what happened with that incident. You know, wow. it, that's, that's me. It's yeah, sad. I have to say that's something I think Phoenix now does. I don't know how long they've done it, but they put out the after action briefing or report and they put the good, the bad and the ugly. I yeah. mean, it, at least on the last one that I read and it, that is really wow. important to do that for everybody's mental healing. And, and again, like you said, lessons learned. And I don't, Tempe's not real good about doing an after action type report. They haven't done that consistently in the past. That's for sure. So Julie, I have most agencies done. I'm not just, I have one more question for you. Um, I know as part of your injury in the recovery that you had a big, uh, large hematoma. So how did you get rid of that? Um, so, so this is kind of funny. I actually had some hematoma. That's a strange one. question, Tom. So there's <laughs> got to be a story. <laughs> so I'm in the hospital. I have a hematoma. Um, it, it, anyone who knows me knows I love to eat. So um, I was real nauseous. Uh, and so they were giving me anti-nausea medication. And I just wanted to eat. And so finally, the trauma doc says, okay, you can have something to eat because it's now like midnight. This incident occurred at like 1230 in the afternoon. And uh, so what do I have but pizza? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I got my pizza and, and I tell the nurse, and I'm, I'm really nauseous again. I need some more anti-nausea medication. And she says, well, you can't for another half hour or so. And uh, so I told Karen, I said, I think I have to throw up. Can you give me the garbage can? So she does. I start throwing up. And and I feel this real nice warm sensation running down my body. I said, Karen, I said, I think I'm missing the can. And she said, you're not missing the can. And I moved the can. Well, out, I ruptured the hematoma. And so the blood, now it's, I'm bleeding again for a few Grand uh, for not having to have surgery. I said, "Well, I saved a city ten grand, but <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of." Funny. Was the pizza um, worth it? Um, do you mind? Uh, uh, yeah, it was pretty good pizza, actually. <laughs> so, um, would would you mind if I shared one Please. thing um, before we go? It's something that I had referenced with this letter from the cousin because I just think it's remarkable, and you can also see the ripple effect of something an incident like this. I'm not going to read the whole part about um, their connection. Um, their cousin. And there he says, it pains me deeply to think that I, if I had more regular. Uh, hold on a sec, Julie. It's, it's locked up again. That's something I'll have. Can you read that one more time? Um, me deeply to think that if I had more regular contact with him, I may have been able to recognize and stop this series of events. Something I'll have to live with. Stemming from this and have started a journey to finding peace within yourself. 
As you know, I know, um, I'm sorry, as I know you know, the odds of surviving a close quarter knife assault by an aggressive attacker are extremely low. I take this to mean that you are here for a very important reason and that you have a highly important purpose in this life. I hope and pray that you to not keep pushing forward and to striving to fulfill your purpose, to make the world a better place in the way that God designed you to. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I just, I, I, was, I was floored by that. And then it was hard because I didn't know how to respond <laughs> to him because the investigation wasn't over. And, right. Um, it, was, it was a tough time. Did you ever have a conversation with that person? So I actually wrote back to him, Susan, and, and I'll just tell you, uh, basically, um, I told him I was touched by his words and that I didn't judge him or the family or even the suspect and that I heard initially that he was actually a really great guy and that having police for 20 years, I came to understand that good people sometimes do bad things and that I can attribute that to their humanity. Um, I knew that there were going to be so many unanswered questions for a long time, Um I told him I retired and that um, I also took my survival to mean that I'm here for a highly important purpose in this life and that I will continue to use this to remind myself to keep pushing forward and striving to fulfill my purpose to make the world a better place in the way that God designed me nice. to. Well, I, I really think what you're doing is fantastic with your with your business um, and talking about the de-escalation and the pre-escalation and what we can do in before things go bad and also you know then if it does go bad how do we get mm -hmm. ourselves out of that position in a, in a good way yes um and along with that is the mental health aspect of it i mean it's if we could push more of that to especially the younger officers um so that they know <clears throat> excuse me what to expect throughout their career and and that some of these feelings aren't just I'm crazy now or I'm, I'm broken and it's, this is wrong, but it's actually okay. And it's normal to feel some of these feelings. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, I don't know if you two know Mike Malpass from yes. Phoenix. He's a great guy, big SWAT operator. He's been involved in multiple shootings. One of the things he said to me is he said, Julie, I can't tell you what normal is, but whatever you go through will be yeah. normal. And I, I remind, Myself of that, and that was really helpful because I'm like, you know, I have never had uncontrollable crying before, right. and I'm like, hey, this is normal. Yeah, those are a normal reaction to it. Exactly. Those are probably some of the best words that that people can give to someone after a critical incident. And it's I don't know if Tom told you, but I spent five weeks with the NYPD post 9/11, actually in the pit and at the landfill with them, and. You know, our our biggest thing was when when we were asked questions like, you know, when does normalcy return? You know, that event went on for over a year, just in cleanup and evidence gathering and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, we told them nor normal will change as this thing goes through phases. But there is no book that says at 24 hours this and right. 36 hours this and whatever it is, is is right for you. And that's a lot of times that's all anybody needs to hear. Well, Julie, we cannot thank you enough for taking your time. We hate we've had the Zoom issues. Maybe we can try this again on one of the 362 days out of the year. We have no clouds in in the sunny spot of Arizona. 
Um, yeah, Valley of the Sun know, is not looking like that right now. Not today. <laughs> but I tell you, you are certainly a hero in my book. And, Mine too. And um, I hope that one day maybe we'll even have a chance to share the stage together. Um, I've taught at a lot of all women in law enforcement conferences that I would love to bring you along with. We'll leave Tom at home since he doesn't meet that woman standard. Um, <laughs> but but I, I cannot tell you enough how what an honor it is to have had you on here. And um, I'm sure we'll have you again. Only next time, maybe we'll actually get you in the office and you can do some demonstrations on Tom. I'll volunteer him now. And we won't have the Zoom issues. <laughs> um, you going to bring it home there, Tom? Again, Julie, thank you. Um, it, we very much appreciate um, hearing your story and so very happy that <clears throat> you've come out stronger on this side of, of that traumatic event. Without a doubt. Um, keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Um, you're an inspiration to a lot of young officers, especially a lot of female officers out there. Yep. Um, You've got a good message and sharing your story with them just helps them for to be prepared for what might come down the future in their career. Sure. Well, as we wrap it up here at Under the well, Shield. Thank you so much. Is it right, Julie? I said it was an honor to be here and thank you for caring. And I have to say thank you for bringing value to the trauma our officers face. It's important. Well, we couldn't agree with you more. And uh, again, to all those listening out there, Under the Shield is here 24-7, uh, 365 days a year. We never ask your name or who you work for. Please call us at 855-889-2348. Uh, anonymity is the most important thing that we can bring to this, especially for people who are struggling as first responders or military or their families. And we want you to know Under the Shield is here. And... Um, you will always reach someone. We are not a referral source. We're not a call you back. Um, we don't even have your phone number when you call us. When you call that crisis line, the crisis line number actually pops up on our stress coaches' phones. And to be a stress coach with us, you have to have done it, been married to it, raised by it, or given birth to it. So anyone that gets your call is going to have some level of experience in this lifestyle. And we just want to say thank you to everyone out there that's listening that's a first responder or military, and especially the family members. We appreciate all the sacrifices you make on a daily basis. That's a very thankless job, especially as the family. Uh, and nowadays, it's pretty thankless in the first responder world. Um, but under the shields here, my cell number is 334-324-3570. These numbers will be in the footnotes wherever you're listening to this on Spotify or wherever. And uh, we hope you'll join us again next week. Um, it'll be a surprise because it's a surprise to us right now, too, who's going to be on. But Tom the Bomb will be back, we hope. I will. And uh, and we look forward to, to having you listening in again. And thank you for all you do. God bless you, and we love you.